From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. The political midterm season is in peak form. This week we had primaries in Pennsylvania, Idaho, Nebraska, and Oregon. And with us to break it all down is our senior political reporter, Bridget Bowman. Bridget, welcome to Political Theater. Thank you for having me. So Pennsylvania is sort of the big, you know, sort of big island in this sea of midterm (laughs) elections, uh, at least on Tuesday evening. We'll get to that in a second, but let's just quickly run down through what some of the other ones are. In Oregon, uh, there we there aren't a lot of marquee races there, and it's also a mail-in form, so it doesn't it you know we have a little bit trickling in. But what happened in Oregon that would that our political theater listeners would like to know? Well, I wasn't really watching a lot in Oregon, like you said. There aren't really competitive house races there, mm-hmm. um, so just basically incumbents right. solidifying their primary. Right. Um, yeah, and moving forward to November. Right, and Kate Brown, you know, is the highest ranking officer. The, mm-hmm. the governor uh, looks like she's got a fairly easy route to to reelection there. So in Idaho, uh, we, a little bit more uh, to to keep us uh, interested in here in here in Washington, Raul Labrador a conservative Republican and one of the founders of the House Freedom Caucus, was running for governor in a competitive primary there. What happened there? He lost, uh, which is interesting in sort of, we've seen this in a couple other states where members of the House who try to run statewide, particularly Republicans, haven't done as well. Um, There have been some exceptions to that, but maybe this is part of this kind of anti- political incumbent, pro-outsider environment that we're in right now. Right. And if you can't convince people that you're an outsider, if you're in the Freedom Caucus, it may, you may not be able to do it at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Labrador is, like you said, a founding member of the Freedom Caucus. And one of the reasons this might be significant for the House Freedom Caucus, which is, you know, has positioned itself as this conservative, king-making kind of block. There's roughly... 30 to 40 of them, they don't make their numbers public, but they're very influential in terms of steering the Republican caucus. And they've got, there's a few people who may, you know, they they try to position themselves at the vanguard of some of the tougher issues. And we may have a potential uh, bid for the speakership in Jim Jordan, one of the, one of the, uh, another one of the House Freedom Caucus founders. So uh, it'll be interesting to keep watching that. For sure. So in Nebraska, Going into the Midwest now, the Plain States. In Nebraska, we had some competitive primaries uh, of, of interest, too. Um, let's look at we've got a Senate race, and then there's also a potential, potentially tough race with the, that the Democrats are looking at to, to target. So let's start with the Senate race. Sure. So with the Senate race, uh, incumbent Republican Senator Deb Fisher won her, easily won her primary, and which is interesting because like six or seven months ago when Steve Bannon was still around, he was it was expected that he might try and find someone to challenge her in a primary. That obviously did not pan out. Steve Um, who? I know. Yeah. (laughs) How much can change in just a few months? Um, And Democrat Jane Raybould won the Democratic primary. Again, that was expected. She raised the most of any contender. She's a Lincoln City Councilwoman, Mm -hmm. and she has previously run statewide. Uh, But Nebraska is still a pretty uphill climb for Democrats, though Raybould has been trying to capitalize on the tariffs that the president is putting forward and how it might negatively impact Nebraska. Um, so she sees that as appears like she sees that as a winning issue for her. On the House side, that was really the big surprise of the night. Uh, so Democrats are targeting Nebraska's second district, which includes Omaha. Um, it's currently held by Republican Congressman Don Bacon. 
He narrowly won last cycle in 2016. He ousted Democratic Congressman Brad Ashford. Ashford was the only incumbent Democrat to lose to a Republican last cycle, and he was looking to come back. He was running in the Democratic primary uh, last night against a first-time candidate named Kara Eastman. She heads a nonprofit that works on like improving environmental quality in the home, in, in various homes uh, in the area. And Eastman ended up winning in a nail biter. It was too close to call. Didn't call it until this until Wednesday morning. Yeah, Yeah. it was too close to call for several hours after the polls closed. And we can report our partners at the Omaha World Herald are declaring that Kara Eastman is the winner in this primary election. That Kara Eastman has defeated Brad Ashford and will go on to face incumbent Congressman Don Bacon in the election in November. Ashford was backed by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which is the campaign arm of House Democrats. Um, He was backed by the Blue Dog Coalition, which backs more fiscally conservative Democrats. He had a number of incumbents, his former colleagues, fundraise for him, donate to his campaign. And Eastman really says that she capitalized on the grassroots energy that's happening in the Democratic Party. I will be the first ever Democratic woman elected from this district in Congress in Nebraska. And I'll be ready to represent the values that we are just sorely lacking in government today. That same, those same values that my mom taught me. The question for Democrats is if she's too far to the left to win in a district like this that tends to lean maybe repu- more Republican. She, for example, supports Medicare for all legislation. Um, she says that's not going to be a problem because a lot of people in the area are concerned about health care. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And it is it's, it is an interesting place for Democrats to like have to sort of pose some of these questions because mm-hmm. Omaha is obviously an urban environment. I mean, it's a city. Democrats feel very comfortable about the way that they run in cities. But it's also a conservative place. Um, you know, the, the, there's a lot of, uh, you know, farm interests and insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's not uh, necessarily like you know, like New York, uh, like running in New York or Los Angeles or what we think of as more, you know, sort of Democrat-friendly urban areas. Uh, and Ashford was, uh, as you said, it was almost like a, he, he was almost as establishment as you get. I mean, he had served mm-hmm. in the the uh, the Nebraska Senate, their, their unicameral uh, Senate, uh, and, and what seemed to be a fairly popular person in, on Capitol Hill when, during his time here. Yeah, a problem for him in the primary might have been that he's also a former Republican, and Kara Eastman kind of not so subtly alluded to that in her campaign materials, always saying that she is the only lifelong Democrat in the race. Uh, So that might have kind of helped her too. When I talked to her last week, she said she really focused a lot on the ground game. She didn't even do any traditional polling. And she said they knocked on about 28,000 Democrats' doors twice. They're making their second path uh, pass through them last week. Um, And I think there were about 40,000 or so people who ended up voting in the Democratic primary. So it kind of was interesting that she took a she really focused on the on the grassroots on turning people out. And it seemed to work for her. How does that compare with the numbers that the Republicans were working with in their primary? Uh, Bacon Bacon... wasn't facing a primary challenge. So So not really a good measure of like of turnout. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, now (laughs) on to Pennsylvania, Uh, the the Keystone State, uh, um, sort of a Keystone marker at this point, too. Mm 
Um, there's been a lot of change in Pennsylvania over the last few months. The su- state Supreme Court has redrawn the, the congressional maps. They ruled that it was an unconstitutional gerrymander because it was too, it favored the Republicans too much. It's a, right now it's a 13-5 in favor of Republicans uh, split. It's an all-male delegation. Donald Trump won it, you know, in 2016, he was the first Republican to win it since the 1980s as, as a presidential candidate. So we got a lot of change going on right mm-hmm. now in, in Pennsylvania, and Democrats are feeling pretty good about their chances. So what what did we learn from the the primaries last night uh, as as we gear up for what will? I mean, Pennsylvania is always important, but it seems even more important uh, in this midterm. Yes, and the the new map that you mentioned is definitely part of that. That Democrats see. They were already targeting Pennsylvania, and their targets just got easier for them to pick up with the new map. Mm-hmm. A lot of these districts became more Democratic. Um, one of the big takeaways from last night is that we know we can be pretty certain in that Pennsylvania's all-male delegation that you mentioned is going to change. It's going to add probably at least one woman, maybe more. Uh, State Representative Madeline Dean won the dem- handily won the Democratic primary in the 4th District, which is solidly Democratic, so mm-hmm. she's likely to win in November. Um, A number of other women also won their primaries, and three others are in competitive races and could have a better chance at at winning than some of the other women who won in some other seats. So it looks like we could have maybe a a few more women in the Pennsylvania delegation. And this will be, I believe this will be the first, If assuming that a woman does win and and, and gets into the delegation, this will be the first time since 2014. Allison Schwartz was the last woman to represent Pennsylvania in the House of Representatives. Uh, She ran for governor and lost in the Democratic primary Mm -hmm. in 2014. So uh, it's, you know, not a huge drought, but it is odd to see a big, diverse state like Pennsylvania yes. not have any women um, on either on either ledger. It's the largest all-male delegation in Congress. And what's interesting, a number of these women candidates uh, held a press call with Emily's List last week, and they talked about kind of the structural barriers that they face, specifically in Pennsylvania, to advancing, including county parties that have that their endorsement carries a lot of weight. A lot of these county parties are dominated as Emily's, Emily's List president said by older white men. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's tough for women to kind of break through and and break through those barriers and also just, you know, making that leap and, and running is tough. And they face questions that other male candidates might not face, like who's taking care of your children and and why aren't you married and, and right. things like that that could be tough for women who are running. And it's interesting you say uh, the the count that the county chairs and so forth are dominated by older white men, but I think you just described the current congressional delegation. <laughs> That's also <laughs> if, true. If, if you look uh, if you look at the a lineup of uh, on both again on both both parties, mm-hmm. I mean it's it's a lot of it's a lot of men. Well, it's all men, and it's it's predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in places like Philadelphia and and Pittsburgh, uh, I mean there, it, it's a it's a very white place. Even though the state is is in, is a very diverse place. Yeah. So um, Democrats felt pretty good about Pennsylvania because of Connor Lamb's election in a special election back in March. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were already kind of feeling it in, in Pennsylvania. Realistically, how many seats do you think that they can flip? Or, or they, I mean, they're, they're targeting, I think, up to six or seven yep. right, to, to try to flip. But let's look at the, you know, let, let's break down what, what's realistic here. Sure. So it looks like Democrats could pick up between like three and five seats. Uh, so their best opportunity for picking up a Republican health seat is in the 5th District in the Philadelphia suburbs. That um, seat was vacated by Congressman Pat Meehan, who resigned amid sexual harassment allegations. That district became a lot more Democratic in redistricting, so 
the Democrats are very likely to pick that up. And Republicans really aren't even trying there, right? They have, mean, yeah, they have one candidate, um, a woman also, who w- was the only Republican left in that primary, but the Democratic side, mm-hmm. that primary was really crowded. And mm-hmm. a woman emerged from that primary as well, Mary Scanlon, who's a former school board member. Mm-hmm. Um, another seat that is looking good for Democrats is the 6th District, which uh, was also vacated. A number, another trend in Pennsylvania, as we've seen across the country, are all of these Republican retirements. So in the 6th District, um, Congressman Ryan Costello is also retiring. He sort of retired at the last minute, so Republicans didn't have time to find anyone else to, to take his place. So there, Democrat Chrissy Houlihan, who's an Air Force veteran, an entrepreneur, uh, she looks like she could be in a strong position uh, to win in November. She had cleared the primary field a little while ago because she was running a pretty strong campaign um, and was touted as a top recruit, too, by Democrats. So those are two uh, good pickup opportunities for Democrats. Another seat they're targeting is the 1st District. So all of these are also around the Philadelphia yeah, right. suburbs. Uh, the 1st District is held by Congress Republican Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick. He fended off a primary challenge last night, and he will face Scott Wallace in November. Wallace defeated Navy veteran Rachel Reddick. So there's an example where a woman didn't win. Mm-hmm. Um, but Wallace is also independently wealthy. He spent 15 times more than Reddick on TV ads in the primary, and that could help him in November in the really expensive Philadelphia media market. Yeah. But Republicans say that Wallace is actually a weak candidate because he moved back to the district to run. I had previously lived in Maryland, though he touts his kind of family roots in the area in Bucks County. Much Um, like Brian Fitzpatrick does, too. (laughs) Right. Fitzpatrick, though, some say that Fitzpatrick kind of has a distinction because he left the district to serve in the FBI. And so having met people who leave to maybe work in law enforcement or serve in the military might be able to withstand some of those carpetbagger attacks. Gotcha. Um, the other seat that Democrats are targeting and think they have a good shot at is the 17th district in on the other side of the state in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So that's held by Republican Congressman Keith Rothfuss. And this is where and Connor this is, Lamb is. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is. He's basically said no thanks to the, the current district he's representing because right. it became more Republican in redistricting in the, the new maps. But he's taking on Rothfuss now. Yeah. This is where it sort of gets tricky with the well, why redistricting is kind of messing all of this up. Because like you said, Connor Lamb's district that he's currently representing was kind of split up. Um, and now he lives technically in the 17th district where Rothfuss represents. And that district also got more favorable to Democrats in redistricting. Uh, so he is challenging Rothfuss there. Democrats think that they have a good shot a, because Connor Lamb is a strong candidate, has a lot of money, had a lot of media attention right, on him right. over the past few months. And Rothfuss, they say, hasn't faced a strong challenger in a little while. Mm-hmm. So. And then also Charlie Dent's uh, right. Allentown-based seat uh, back on like north of Philadelphia mm-hmm. is something that the Democrats feel strongly about. But it's, it, is, it is interesting because this map, the, all the map Jenga you know, mm-hmm. is, has really gotten things kind of a little confusing, huh? For sure. And the numbers change, so we're still, still figuring out what's going on. All right. Well, Bridget, thank you so much for breaking this down. This is a lot of information, but it's just, I mean, it was a big, Pennsylvania is, is going to be a, a big part of uh, how we figure out what's going to happen with the midterms. Thank Definitely. you for keeping track for us. Sure thing. <laughs> All right. I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this, and especially Bridget's stories about Pennsylvania, visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at RollCall. Thank you for listening.